The Data Reaper podcast is a companion which provides extra insight into the weekly report found at ViciousSyndicate.com. Join us for a deeper dive into the numbers to help you improve your Hearthstone game. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Data Reaper podcast. I am your host, Ridiculous Hat, and joined as always is Chief Crewmate, who is definitely not the imposter, Zach O. Zach, how you doing? How you doing, Hat? Doing okay, you know. I was uh, I was doing swipe card. I got it on the first swipe, so you know, pretty happy about that. Uh, Wait, I didn't see you swipe. That's a bit sus. What were you doing? I was doing. Uh, um, damn! I killed him. I killed him, and I'll tell you what: I would have done it again. Oh, cold blooded! I knew you were a rogue player. So. This is not an Among Us podcast, this is a Hearthstone podcast, and of course, we're here to talk about the most recent Data Reap Report 175, which was published yesterday on the 8th. We're recording today on the 9th of October, and next week there should be a report on Thursday the 15th as scheduled, barring any last-minute blizzard changes, uh, which we aren't anticipating at this time. So, talk about the classes. And the reason we're talking about Among Us is because there's this amazing, hilarious, druid meme in the latest report that... Zach came up with all on his own, and uh, and Joe photoshopped together for us. They're going to think that you're sarcastic, you know? I actually did come up with it. No, no, no. I'm trying not to be sarcastic and give credit where it's due. A couple people tagged me on Twitter. was like, did you do this? I'm like, no. Everything in the report is all from the twisted mind of Zacho. It's all you. Not everything. Come on. Not everything. Okay. Uh, most, most of the things. The memes are you. I assume they're always you. Yeah, the memes are mostly me, yeah. That is correct. The other people in the team uh, don't tend to meme no. too much. But also... I, just, uh, I am the meme sparkler of the report. I, I I go over the report, I edit it, I chop and change it, and then I sparkle, 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 meme all around. That's a very interesting visual. Yeah. Yes. So, speaking of memes, let's talk about the druid class. Because uh, there's a lot going on here, and it doesn't seem like anything is working. I was looking in our deck library yesterday, uh, just because we were troubleshooting a small issue in the website, and I was like, oh, I'll just click on whatever Druid deck is here. There's nothing. There's no decks there. Yeah, so here's the thing about Druid, because, you know, I've heard some people respond to the report saying, you know, hey, Druid is, is okay, it feels all right. Uh, there are some people who are hitting top hundred legend with Druid. There's a few, or top legend, top hundred legend with Druid, and saying, "Hey, the deck's still fine. Why is VS coming out saying these things about being crippled and such?" Well, here's the thing about uh, a deck that has, or an archetype that has a 46% win rate. Maybe it ends up improving to a 47% win rate. Who knows? Maybe even prove a little bit more. When people play a deck, when a deck is popular enough, there will be individual success stories. There will be individual cases where people post good win rates with it. It's just inevitable when you have a large population of players. The key is that that population of players is shrinking because while you hear about the success stories, you don't hear about other players who are quitting on the deck and quitting on the class and not playing it anymore. And what the key thing to keep in mind is that the deck 
continues to decline in its popularity, and we haven't yet reached a point where it stabilizes around any number. Um, so basically what's happening with Druid is that we've looked into it very deeply. Uh, we looked at all of its variants. We looked at all experimentation uh, that people are trying with Druid after the balance changes. And I haven't seen a single deck, a single list, that if it took over the archetype, if it became the Druid deck to play, would put it above a low of the low tier 3 deck. So that like that's the optimistic case scenario. Where if you take the maybe the best performing list, the best performing build, and you try to estimate how good it can be, it can't be better than tier three, and it's still quite a bit away from being a fifty percent win rate uh, deck. So that's indicative of a class that's in, that's struggling, obviously. And the reason why it's struggling is not because the whole game plan crashed. It's because one the, your most powerful turn is one mana more expensive, and sometimes you don't feel it. Sometimes you queue into a druid, and they have overgrowth into an enervate guardian animals, and it doesn't feel like anything changed. But that's the thing. You don't feel it because the deck plays out the same. It's just that there are, there's a certain percent of the games that... You would have won previously, and now you don't win them anymore. And if the, that percent of games is maybe 4% of games, are, is an individual going to feel that? Not really. But 4% is a difference between where it was before and where it kind of is right now. 4 or 5%. Like, if you play 100 games, 5 of those games you might feel the nerf. In 5 of those games, that nerf might have change the outcome of the match. And that's difficult for an individual to to catch on to. Unless he's given data and then he says, oh yeah, there was some games where I, I felt that change. So that's what's happening with Druid right now. Um, they did a slight tap, the slightest of taps, on one of the deck's two most powerful cards. And that was enough to kind of kill it. You know, I remember something similar with Fungal Fortunes. You know, when Fungal Fortunes initially changed, in the first week, people kept playing it. And, you know, they said, oh, so it's still okay, it's still fine. But it wasn't. Uh, when Darkler was nerfed, which was far more of a drastic nerf in Zoo Warlock, Norwis hit number one legend with Zoo Warlock after the nerf. Within 48 hours of the nerf going live. Yes, and Meaty he hit Meaty hit top ten legend with Zuorlock, saying that the deck is fine and VS and HS replay are wrong about it. Well, we're not wrong about it. <laughs> Zoo sucks. Nobody's playing it anymore because it doesn't work. Uh, I will say Druid is better than where Zuorlock is, that's for sure. But it's still looking pretty weak. Um, the surprising thing, I was surprised because all of its variants were affected pretty dramatically. I expected, personally, I expected the Mountzilla build to be a little bit better. But it doesn't seem to be the case. People are trying Kelthus. 
Um, but the Keltas build don't look very good either. So we have a case where some players, there will always be a number of players, who are doing well with the deck that is not very good right now. Like if you have, like if Control Shaman popularity was 5 to 10%, I guarantee you that somebody or a few people may have been able to hit top 100 legend with it. With Control Shaman. Doesn't mean the deck is good. It's just that when you have a certain amount of players playing it, somebody's going to do well with it because there's a, there's a lot of players. Somebody's going to hit a good win rate with it. It's inevitable. It doesn't mean that the deck isn't weak. So that's what's happening with Druid. Uh, hopefully. I'm hoping that we find a build, maybe next week, that alleviates some of the problems that Druid is suffering right now because of the balance changes. Maybe players learn to adjust. There is a tendency for decks after the nerf to be initially, you know, you fall off a cliff, and then maybe you recover a little bit. So there might be some recovery happening over the next week. Maybe Druid will manage to hit tier 3, I don't know. But the point is that it's a lot weaker than before, and it doesn't seem to be a deck that has the matchup spread required to go back anywhere near where it was before. That's the bottom line. And I'm I, I'm I'll be surprised if it if things end up dramatically changing and suddenly Druid goes back to where it was. I'll be very surprised. Yeah, before that the guardian animals would just come down so much earlier and even if what you described uh with a four percent variance being difficult to feel individually but so significant in aggregate is hard to put into words, but I feel like 4% of your games is going to come down to probably about what two different people can experience from variance in just which cards they draw in a, in like a 10-game session. The sample size is so small, uh, whereas over the hundreds of thousands of games that we look at, 4% is every, what, that's every 25 games, one of them would change? That's enormous. It's such a huge deal. Yep. And it does look like Quest Druid does seem like the deck to play if your opponents are only playing Soul Demon Hunter. That is the only deck you are seeing. Yeah, other than Guardian Archetype, we've seen players try Quest Druid. Again, some of them hit top 100 Legends. Some of them even hit top 10 with Quest Druid. But it's probably because um, there was a period of time where, like, Top 100 Legend was, like, I don't know, 50% Soul Demon Hunters? So if you only hit that matchup, you might have a good time with Quest Red, but it doesn't really do well against anything else, pretty much anything else. I was even surprised at how poorly it does against Hunter. You know, I, I said, oh, it has life gain, so maybe it's good against Face Hunter, too. No, it isn't. That's a horrible matchup. Like, yeah. Face Hunter stomps Quest Red which is remarkable, uh, at least if you've never experienced the matchup until you actually experience it and say, yeah, the Druid just gets rolled over. So, yeah, Quest Druid doesn't look good at all. Our estimate is that it's deep Tier 4 territory and nowhere near competitive, and I expect that experiment to also fade. I was trying it out because, you know, whenever I see a decklist on Twitter, I'm, I'm, I take it and I put it in my client because... Uh... I lack impulse control. And 
I was doing okay with it for a couple games, and then I went turn one quest. My opponent went coined imprisoned Felma, and I said, "Oh, that's going to deal me fifteen damage." And then I died on turn five. My quest, my quest cleared, and then my face exploded the same turn. Felma just solos Questerid. Wow, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you can't remove it. Like they coin Felma, the game is over, right? That thing is going to deal twenty. Like what's what's the best out is Wrath Crystal Power, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. You play Crystal Power and you hope it hits the Crystal Power and then you Wrath it, I guess. Yeah. But you can't even like, like you like pre quest, you cannot Wrath it and kill it. You have to take, you have to use your Hero Power and take five more. So that's the best outcome. You have a Wrath. Oh. Yeah. It was. It was not the most pleasant experience, and I stopped playing Questerid after. I understand it's a single game sample size, but I saw that card and was like, "Oh, I can, I can actually not interact with that card until turn five, and it's turn one." Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty much for Druid. Hopefully yeah. next week, if there is something next week, of course we will tell you. If there's a build, there's a possibility that we find something that looks competitive, and we'll we'll feature it. We'll talk about it, of course. But so far, that's what's happening. Yeah, and honestly, I feel like even before the nerf, Soul Demon Hunter players are just getting better at navigating the deck, uh, and, you know, builds have some wiggle room, but Soul Demon Hunter seems to be a deck that really scales well with skill. We should talk about Demon Hunter now. This seems to be the defining deck of the meta. Like, this is what the meta is about. It's about Soul Demon Hunter. Well, the initial reaction was definitely about Soul Demon Hunter, because what happens initially is that you you nerf druid right you make druid a lot weaker you essentially delete it and when the field doesn't change immediately which it doesn't because you didn't give players enough time to respond right then the initial conclusion is that soul demon hunter is nuts because people weren't playing paladin which was the only other counter to soul demon hunter so soul demon hunter is just uncontested um, and that what what's happened at the end of September, beginning of October, where Soldiman Under basically had no bad matchups at high levels of play. Its worst matchup was like fifty fifty. So it just stomped everything, just beat everything, and then people started playing more Paladin. People started building their decks in accordance to the new meta, where you cut good cards that are good against Druid. And you start running cards that are good against Soul Demon Hunter. Like a good example is that Cyclone Mage is shouldn't be running Devolving Missiles anymore. Because Devolving Missile is a card that's fantastic against Druid, but it's one of the worst cards. It's probably the worst card in your deck in the Soul Demon Hunter matchup. Because it does nothing. Soul Demon Hunter just smacks your face. So just like Ray of Frost is not super effective against Soul Demon Hunter, Devolving Missiles is even worse. So people are building their decks in accordance to this deck. And the win rate fell a little bit. It's still very good, but it's not a dominant deck in terms of this is unbeatable. Also, Priest uh, is making strides in its refinement, and it seems to be developing as a soft little counter to Soul Demon Hunter. And there are also other decks like Control Warrior being experimented with, that has a really good Soul Demon Hunter matchup. We'll talk about that later. But people are thinking pretty hard about ways to beat Soul Demon Hunter, and that is a, that affects the win rate. 
So I expect Soul Demon Hunter to still be very good, obviously. It's going to be one of the top decks in the meta, but it doesn't seem to be exhibiting the performance or the matchup spread of an unstoppable deck. I think um, the meta will be able to keep it in check. Um, maybe it's a little bit too prevalent right now, and it feels a little bit overwhelming and overbearing as top legend, but I think things will get better over time a little bit. I don't expect it to, you know, drastically decline, but it's probably going to be in control. Yep. Uh, to refer to our discussion last week, it seems to be the perfect example of meta-defining, but not meta-warping. Uh, it's, you know, you can't play aggressive decks into a, a three-mana Dustbreaker if it is a defining deck, but there are counters to Soul Demon Hunter that also may be weak to some level of aggression here. And, yeah, it, there are plenty of things that you can do if you really want to beat this deck that you can do without hemorrhaging your win rate in other matchups. You do not have to resort to Quest Druid. It encourages tall deck building. It encourages you to go tall, uh, build, uh, develop big minions with high health that dodge the Dustbreaker. Obviously, Soul Demon Under still has the capability of AoE damage, which is very efficient. Uh, and Blade Dance, and they can do crazy things and remove multiple 8 health minions. It's just difficult for them to do, and it's less likely that they'll be able to do it consistently, which means that decks that develop tall boards uh, generally do well against Soul Demon Hunter. So that's what it's encouraging the meta to behave. That's how it's kind of affecting the meta. But it's it's a natural part of the game, right? A deck is strong in some areas and weak in other areas, and other decks try to attack those weak areas. Yeah, Demon Hunter has clear weaknesses with large things. I'm really glad that this deck, by the way, does not have access to five mana Warglaves. That would have been something else. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. Five mana Warglaves would have been so ridiculous with this deck. Yeah, I'm really um, glad so that, that's not a thing. Yeah, yeah. That's, I, I guess it's hard to fit Warglaves in this deck when you run Marrow Slicer as well. But I suspect that the deck would have found some way to make that space, maybe. But um, you're right. Uh, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, we don't have to worry about it. Uh, as for Agro Demon Hunter, um, it's looking... Uh, the more Soul Demon Hunter succeeds, the worse it is for Agro Demon Hunter because the direct matchup is not very good. Obviously, Agro Demon Hunter does the things, plays into Soul Demon Hunter's strength because it's an aggressive deck that has a lot of small minions and it's a very burn-centric deck, which means it's um, it's weak to Aldraki Warblades and that's not a good thing, right? You want to build tall and not be too burn-reliant, and that's exactly what Magro Demon Hunter is. Plays into the deck's strength. Um, so as long as Soul Demon Hunter is this dominant, don't expect Agro Demon Hunter to be very popular. And and that's, and that's the Demon Hunter class, so it's time to move on to the other, well, highly visible class in this meta. The, the darling of Twitlonger, as of the past week. Let's talk about Mage. Yeah, so here's the thing about Mage. Yeah, I've seen all the complaints on the Twitter timelines about the created by meta 
and I I'm going to give my uh, two pennies worth about this issue. Ooh, opinions yeah. from Zach O. The O yeah. in Zach O stands for opinion, by the way. Not many people know yeah. that. Yeah. So, so here's the thing about, you know, there are a lot of complaints about the created by meta taking skill out of the game. And I couldn't disagree more with it. I do think, I do agree that there is a frustration element in playing against cards like Solarian Prime and Evocation. And there is a frustration element into playing against Wandmaker and Cobalt Spellkin that generate one mana discovers, that discover other things, that discover create other things. And it makes it difficult to play around all the randomly generated things. However, that doesn't mean that these decks are not skillful. Uh, in fact, I do believe that this is, and it's not just belief. There's also some analysis behind it that this is one of the most skill-intensive metas of all time. There are multiple decks, including the Wandmaker Spellkin decks like Control Priest and Cyclone Mage, that indicate that these are some of the most skill-testing decks we've ever seen. And they're very elaborate to play and they're very difficult to play well because you need to have a certain skill in managing those random resources and playing to your outs and understanding your game plan, which can sometimes change in any matchup multiple times. And it's very difficult to navigate these scenarios because every game feels different and that requires different decision-making. Uh, sometimes you reach a... Similar scenarios, and you have to play them differently based on the contents of your hand, which can be very different because of the random generation. Now, there is an argument, and I can understand that argument, that it's difficult to... It takes out skill in playing against it because you basically can't play around stuff, right? Because everything is generated since you... It's hard for you to have a, a read to your opponent's hand when half of its hand is randomly generated, then it's diff like it's difficult to test your skill playing against them. And again, I kind of disagree because, yeah, it's difficult for you to make reads, hand reads, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't demand other sorts of skill, other sorts of skill from a Hearthstone player. There are different skills that are required from a Hearthstone game. It's not just about hand reading. There are other levels of layers of decision making that you have to do. And if you play a Cyclone Mage Control Priest matchup, people will say, meme about it, saying it's a clown fiesta, right? But it's not really a clown fiesta in terms of skill. It's very easy to pin wins and losses on whatever was generated. But the fact of the matter is this, when you have so much generation of one mana spells, it actually kind of, the variance is kind of evened out to some degree. Because if you, if you generate two one mana spells in a the game, then maybe you find two specific one mana spells, like, for example, in the Demon Hunter matchup, like Demon Hunter plays one maker, you don't see a lot of one mana spells. 
So sometimes it gets stuck with a philosophy and doesn't have a way to activate it. And sometimes it gets mana burn against Druid. But when you play Wandmaker and Spellkin, then you kind of see everything there is to see from the one mana pool. Because the one mana pool isn't that big. So, yeah. Cobalt Spellkin builds of Cyclomage are going, probably, going to generate a Devolving Missile during the course of the game. And if you're playing Miracle Rogue, and you're playing Questing Adventures, you need to keep that in mind. You need to play around that, even if it's not naturally in the Mage's hand. Like, the, if you develop a Questing Adventure, a sole Questing Adventure, on the board, when you could have gone wider and played a bunch of lackeys in order to try soak Devolving Missile uh, hit shots, if you didn't make that decision, you made a misplay. You cannot blame the fact that, oh, he generated the Devolving Missiles. You need to account for it, that he might have generated it. So this is one very simplistic example. What I'm saying is that there is a skill in anticipating generation when it's abundant. And it is kind of, you generate something quite specific. And if you generate a lot of it, you're going to see most of that pool of one mana spells. Now, yeah, if you get... If the priest gets his one mana discover and then he can discover any spell, then things get a little bit wider. And I agree that maybe generation is a little bit out of reach. But I don't think that it impedes on your ability to make decisions, whether you're playing as the Cyclone Mage or playing against it, to the degree when these decks don't take skill or these decks don't encourage skill matchups. Because that couldn't be further from the truth. These decks do encourage skill matchups. A lot of them. I think people are going to complain about anything in a meta. And this is what there is to complain about. Because you can't really complain about balance. You can't complain about this deck being too powerful. You can't complain about super high variance right now. Because Druid is gone. And Spellkin, Wandmaker, and these generation is not that high of a variance. It's not like... I had overgrowth or I didn't have overgrowth on turn four, which is why I win or I don't win. It's not that level of variance that immediately affects the outcome of a matchup. So people are going to complain about generation because it is kind of annoying. When you lose to it, it can be annoying. I agree with that. But I think that if these are the complaints that we're seeing, I think we're in a good place. I don't think that there will ever be a meta in Hearthstone where people will not complain about something. So, if you make that assumption that people are always going to complain about something, and I'm not saying it in a patronizing way, it's just natural that in a metagame, in a video game, there will be complaints about something, then I think if these are the complaints, then we're in a good spot. Okay, so that was uh, the, the Zacco Preach of the Week. Wow. Opinions. I love it. Um... And yeah, I'm going to largely agree. I think that Cyclone Mage is a remarkably consistent deck because here's what happens. Step one, play Dinky Minions the first two turns. Step two, do a bunch of stuff and generate a bunch of spells. Step three, Mana Giant. And step four, Solarian Prime. Yeah. Like, if you don't pressure the mage and you just let it milk value and let it play its value, its generated value, you give it comfortable mana turns where it can spend that mana on the things that it generates. 
and you give it time to shuffle the Solarium Prime, maybe discover another one, shuffle another, draw it, play it, you're going to lose Hearthstone games because Solarium Prime, it doesn't matter whether it generates Deep Freeze or Flame Strike or whatever. If you have a board and it plays that card, your board will probably be ruined. And that's not really random. It's not that random. It's very likely that your board will get wrecked. Because there are a lot of different AoEs that Mage has at its disposal. And it's very likely to play one of them, at least. It has a lot of removal. And it has a bit of value cards. So it's going to get there if you let it play Prime. It's annoying when you experience it. And it, you see how it randomly wrecks your board. Because it does it in a random fashion. But when you look at the average outcome, it's not that random. The, the complaints that we're seeing, I think, are really just related to experience versus win rate. Uh, statistically, the deck is not an outlier in terms of win rate. It is an, an outlier in terms of play rate. Uh, it's, it seems to be disproportionately represented as you move up in the ladder. And there are... The high rolls are pretty gross. Well, I was playing this last week, uh, and I, I hadn't gotten Legend yet, and so I played against a poor Quest Druid, and I played two Mana Giants on turn four, right? And that's atypical. But also, it's a play pattern that I would not be surprised if someone took a screenshot and posted and said, this shouldn't happen. But it's also not a usual thing. I will say that Mana Giant maybe doesn't cost enough mana. I don't know. But also, this doesn't come up a lot. And even then, every deck has a high roll in this meta. It's functionally similar to Edwin Van Cleef. There are nudges that Team 5 could do if they wanted to to make the play experience a little different. I think it would be reasonable to sit, to have a rule that Legendary spells can't be discovered or generated because then they're a lot less legendary. Uh, you know, you could do something like that, but... Breaking news, Hat. I have to interrupt you. There are breaking news. What's that? Synergy-based deck occasionally hits his high roll <sighs> and blows the opponent out. I know, it's incredible, right? Can you imagine? We've got to publish an emergency bulletin. How dare Team 5 design synergy-based decks that can occasionally cause uh, these these blowout games. How dare they? Well, if you don't have the ability to high roll sometimes and have a really strong opening that occasionally wins you games, then you're probably not a good constructed deck. You're probably not a good constructed deck. The other thing is there is no win-win here, right? Because if you don't have that synergy, then what is the alternative? on-curve, boring mid-range decks that, that just play fair stats every turn. Do you want that? I don't want that. I don't want the meta to be around that. So if we need some randomness to create different play experiences, then that's fine that sometimes the synergy is a little bit too much in one game and somebody gets blown out. But again, there is no real way to address it. These are complaints that I think are mostly, they mostly exist because that's the only real thing that you can complain about in this meta. You can't complain about that being too powerful. You can't, I'm repeating myself, but you get the point. Yeah. And Nalgadon had an excellent twit longer, um, at tier one in the twit longer meta this week, which is extensive, uh, talking about how just... People have a lot of rose-colored glasses, but this meta is about as diverse and balanced as we've had in a while. As we've stated before, even throughout the, the adjustments made by Team 5, it's still 
very diverse, very balanced, a lot of opportunity for different play experiences. And low variance metas, I don't know if any of our listeners were playing. I don't, I don't know how many of our listeners were playing back in like the grand tournament. Uh, but there was a point where the highest variance was knife juggler or flame juggler pings on turn two or three or implosion rolls or, or crackle Ugh. nostalgia really makes you know the heart grow fonder there are there were used to be so much board like variants that impact the board on turn two and three that won the game at that moment you basically flipped coins with knife juggler with flame jungler, with implosion, with these high variance cards, with uh, uh, I forgot the three two that summons a random totem, and sometimes it was totem golem, and you just won the game. Tuscar totemic. So there used to be those things, and sometimes I see people say, "Oh, we need to go back to those days when there was this deck, and this deck was really skill testing, like Shadowwalk Sham." Now we're looking back at Shadowwalk Shaman and view it as some sort of pinnacle of perfection, of game design perfection, that if only we had it back now. I mean, it's crazy. Because when Shadowwalk Shaman was popular, people complain about it. They pl- complain about it much like they complain about Pilgrim, Turtle Mage. So I think that there's a little bit of nostalgia. Nostalgia makes you forget about the bad things, makes you focus more on the good things. For me, personally, and also objectively, when I look at the meta's metrics, this is one of the most balanced metas. This is one of the most diverse metas. Yes, some classes are kind of struggling right now. But with Druids being nerfed, other archetypes from other classes are are now popping up. So there is diversification of other classes as a result of Druid being nerfed. So you lose a class, but you may have gained other decks in other classes. So I'm not even sure if the diversity element is getting that bad because of those balance changes. But I think the Skullman's Academy meta overall has been a huge success. Um, there are a lot of options to choose from. A lot of, de- a lot of the decks are very skill testing, are very challenging to play, and play to optimal usage. And I think that's a good thing for pro players. I think a lot of compelling design in decks that feel good, like Soul Demon Hunter, it's a deck that feels good to play. I think it's fun to play. I think it's also interesting to play against because of the clear weaknesses and strength that it possesses and the way that you need to attack it. It feels like a different matchup. Playing against Soul Demon Hunter is very different from playing against Control Priest, for example. Uh, it's very different from playing against Cyclone Mage. It's very different from playing against Rogue. Uh, even though... You can you can put these decks and put it under the created by category, which is I think is extremely simplistic. These decks play out different and have very different game plans, and I don't think that they are any in any way generic. So I think things are good. Things are good. People will always complain about something. Now, when it comes to the deck itself, Cyclone Mage. Um, not much changes this week, but it does seem like, again, since Devolving Missile is a worse card, you'd rather get it from your generation pool rather than hard run it in your deck. It's really bad against Soul Demon Hunter. Uh, it was mostly good against Druid. So the vanilla build seems to be worse now. 
You'd rather have Spellkin. Helps you constantly reload your hand. Helps your Mana Giants. Helps your Sorcerer's Apprentice turns. And Mana Cyclone turns. So that's the way to go right now. We did one suggestion, which is cut Ballad Spellwing and run Jandis. Jandis, really good card against Soul Demon Hunter. That's when it comes to major refinements. And when it comes to the meta, I think uh, we're in a very good place. Yeah, well said. Uh, do we have any insight onto the Cyclone Highlander list or Highlander in general? Or is it just not played enough? It's not played enough. Uh, there is there's still the indication, the estimate, that the Cyclone build is better. But I think that deck is not gaining traction because Cyclone Mage is far more enticing to play. It's better, and it's more enticing to play, so there is no real reason to play the Highlander build unless you specifically want to play it. Um, and, and that probably will will stick around. Cyclone Mage did get better because of the nerf to Druid. It, it struggled a bit before the balance changes. Remember, it had a sub-50% win rate. Now it's not the case. It's one of the best-performing decks out there. And it's very strong, and it's very skill-testing, and I think it's interesting to play. I think it's. I personally think it's also interesting to play against, as long as you go into the matchup with a certain mentality of, this is part of that game plan. This is what they're going to do. They're going to generate spells, and I need to be able to play into that and play a, like focus my game plan with that in mind and not get frustrated when Solarian Prime blows me out. I still don't understand why people rage so much about Solarian Prime. That card is meant to be powerful when it enters the board. When you play a Zixer, a Zixer Prime, and it blows your board and makes a huge board, nobody complains about that, right? Because the outcome isn't random. It makes four rush minions and kills your stuff and sticks around. And can kill you on the next turn. That's what Solarian Prime does. It just does it differently. That's it. I will say, the only the only thing I will note is that when Solarian Prime casts either Potion of Illusion or Yogbox, the games are a little, a little tilty. A little tilty, yeah. I agree. Those are the most degenerate outcomes. But that's not Solarian Prime's fault. No. That's Puzzle Box's fault. Yes. For existing... And, yeah, I agree, Potion of Illusion can be irritating. When that happens and you can repeat it, that's like the one time where I'm saying, okay, this is kind of unfair. This is kind of nonsense, right? When when you Potion Illusion and get another one for one mana and can play it on the same turn, that's a little bit of nonsense. But um, Puzzle Box is Puzzle Box, unfortunately. Yeah, the, the less said about Puzzle Box, the better. Uh, all right, well... A good, good marination on mage there. Good thinking about it, and I agree that there's opportunity for the for players to shift their mindset against it a little bit. Um, Just keep it in mind. Like, tell yourself when you're playing against mage. This is a competitive advice for people who want to get better. This is not me just saying, "Oh, this man is good. Get good." No, I'm saying if you keep a mindset of they're going to generate this kind of stuff. They're going to generate extra ray of frost. They're going to generate maybe a frost nova of a blizzard. And that's part of the game. If you keep that in mind, I think you will be frustrated less. And you'll probably also perform less because instead of focusing on how what bad luck happened to you, 
you can focus on what could I have done better. And I think that for every player, most players, even all players, including pro players, who are good at the game because they look at themselves so much and they ask themselves questions of what could I have done better, keep that mindset even if you get some bad luck. Even if something bad happens to you, think about what you could have done better in order to put yourself in a better position to win. And if you continuously blame RNG on your losses in Hearthstone, um, it's going to be diffi- more difficult for you to get better at the game. Now, I do that too. I, you know, I, sometimes I also rage about RNG. Oh, this nonsense happened to me, whatever. But you know, after a couple of minutes, I move on. I move on and then I ask myself if there was something I could have done better in that game. If there wasn't, then there wasn't. If there was something, then I focus on that. I try to focus on that rather than what happened to me. So try to keep that in mind and utilize that kind of mindset. And I guarantee you, you will probably uh, improve in the game faster than in a situation where you just blame RNG all the time. Yes. Speaking of speaking of blaming RNG all the time, let's talk about Valera and friends. So, Rogue. Zach, you put a Dragon's Horde deck in the Vicious Syndicate meta report. Are you okay? I'm okay. I'm okay. So here's the thing, right? Dragon Horde sucks. It sucked for a couple months, but then we saw a new build that ran under Belly Fence, in addition to Vendetta. And in that build, under Belly Fence is pretty good. I think that the reason why Underbelly Fence started seeing more play is because Druid got nerfed, so people started cutting Cult Neophyte, and then they found something else to play instead, which kind of tells you how stuck people were on Cult Neophyte and how that existence of that card prevented you from seeing some better alternative that probably would have been better even before the balance changes. Because Underbelly Fence is good. And because it's good, it makes Dragon's Horde more more tolerable since you kind of need that activation. Now, in the most popular, like most builds that run Underbelly Fence run two Dragon Hordes. And that probably is too much because you run uh, you run um, Plagiarize, you run um, Wand uh, Thief, you run Feral Cat. You don't need two Dragon's Horde, but one is okay. It seems to be okay in most situations and performs at a reasonable level when you play Underbelly Fence. So we evaluate both of the builds, the Eviscerate build and the Vendetta build, and it, they're pretty similar in their power level and in their matchup spread. Like, I wouldn't say that Fence and Vendetta specifically helps you in the matchup more than Eviscerate does. Because the Burgo build, right, the, the build that runs Dragon's Horde and Underbelly Fence and Vendetta has a bit more value, lasts a little bit longer, while the Eviscerate build looks to finish games a little bit quicker. Uh, but overall, they're pretty similar in their matchup spread, and we couldn't determine if there was something better because they seemed pretty similar, so we are featuring both. So Dragon's Horde actually made it to the VS. Uh, data reaper report which shows that our opinions are based on the fact 
if the facts change, if reality changes, we also change our opinions to fit the new reality. That's our philosophy. Yeah. Amazing that we, uh, that this is where we ended up. But I will say I played some games with the Vendetta list. It's, it's quite fun and definitely feels relevant. Underbelly Fence is, that's a totem golem. Like, that's, that's really good on turn two if you can activate on turn one. Now, that doesn't always happen, but Wand Thief does make things a lot more consistent. And even just getting it down on turn three or four can be quite powerful. Four health is a really nice breakpoint in this meta. Yeah, you don't need to fixate on having fence activated on turn two, which is kind of why people are running Dragon Sword two copies of it. I don't think that fence is need, needs to go on two in order to be good. It's very good in the mid game. It's very good with Shadow Step. Um, it's just a good card, so it works pretty well. Personally, I've had you've had more success with the Vendetta build. I personally had more success with the Eviscerate build. I'm not feeling defense build, but the data says that it's pretty good. So that's what we're going with. Yeah, it's. I think both are reasonable options. And, you know, I mean, Eviscerate has been a rogue card that you want to be playing in your deck since rogue was invented. Just uh, it's, We're very good at getting them close to dead, and then suddenly they're dead. Uh, but it does seem like there's more opportunity with uh, Secret Miracle Rogue right now than there has been in the past. And I'm happy to see it kind of climbing up the report here a little bit. We normally don't talk about it in the third position. But with the Druid nerf, it seems like Rogue is, has opportunity to bounce back a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't perform that well. But it's okay, it's competitive. And then there was also Galaka Rogue, which is coming back. Galicron or at least Rogue. trying to come back. It's definitely yeah, trying. We haven't seen that in a while. I mean, the, the nerf to Druid uh, was pretty big for the deck. Now, the deck has, is very, the archetype is very experimental right now. There are a lot of different approaches. We're seeing secret builds, we're seeing stealth builds, and then we're seeing vanilla builds. And the vanilla builds look really good compared to the other builds. The, the builds that just don't run the stealth, don't run Greyheart Sage, don't run Hanar and Stunners. They just run good cards. That seems to work very well with Polkit. Um, the build that we're featuring in the report, I'm pretty confident that this is the best direction you can go with Galakron Rogue. Uh, of course, maybe you could change maybe a couple of cards, but the packages, those secret and stealth uh, packages, don't seem to be pulling their weight in Galakron Rogue, especially, I think, because it's Polkit. Polkit generally alleviates card draw, the need for card draw. When you run Polkit, you know, a card like Grey Archers is less important because it's all about. You just want to, I don't know, get a couple of invokes going. Uh, maybe you can afford to even wait and poke it and then play your Shield of Galakron and and then play the fully upgraded Galakron that you've drawn. But in general, get a couple of invokes, play poke it, play, uh, you know, Wondrous Wand off of Togwago, and you win games. It's a, it's a really powerful late game uh, plan. And yeah, I, I think Galakrimar right now, uh, aggregated stats suggest it's like low tier three, but I think it's a lot better once people, you know, run the good build or run the good shell uh, is a better phrase because we're not claiming that these 30 cards are the perfect cards to run, but Faceless Corruptor seems pretty good in the deck. 
questing adventure not super important now that there's no druid or there's a lot less druid um and yeah galcoro couldn't come back i can see it happening it's i played a little bit of this too because it's a rogue deck and I will say that it feels oddly familiar to invoke Galakrond again. We did it for so long, and Galakrond is no longer the giant tempo board swing that it once was. It's a lot harder to play Togwaggle and generate a wand and survive, but it's fun. And I'm, I'm glad that the play pattern is still available to us, even though I'm also glad they nudged the power level of that card down a little bit of the Galakrond itself. Because it didn't need to be yeah. just seven mana play a bunch of stuff. Like, it didn't need to be Solarian Prime. And the Polkit p- combo is pretty fun. Yeah. Like, it's pretty good to, to do that play. It, like, it takes setup. It's, it's a lot to set up. It's not easy to set up, but uh, I think it's a, it's, it's a healthy late-game combo. Because it takes a bit of time to set it up, and you need to have some... You need to have, Set it up. Uh, you need to spend quite a bit of mana before on Togwoggle in order to be able to set it up and also to invoke. But once you get it going, it's a it's a it's a pretty good win condition. So try it out, see what happens. I I have a good uh, gut feeling about Galconrog. I think possibly it could be tier two, something like that, as good mm. as that. Uh, I think just Sage and the uh, Secret Package are just not worth it. Yeah, uh, there are enough good cards after the expansion um, to just leave them out, and you don't really feel it. It's not like you're desperate for card draw. You have a lot. You have lackey generation that helps, and Polkit again, as I said, uh, makes you far more likely to draw your power play, which draws you cards also. So you really don't need to have like a full hand, and sometimes it's even uh, like hurts you more than it helps you. Now, and to clarify. This is, this is interesting, because you said it's better without the secret package, but I think it's also better without the secret passage. I think both situations, both are correct, that not running secret passage is actually correct in this deck as well. Yeah, it makes no sense to run that card because your curve is so high. Like, it's just, secret passage is a card that's good when you have a lot of cheap stuff to play, to follow up on. But when you have such a high mana curve, then secret passage is just not that good. Makes no sense to run in this deck. Which is kind of why I like the, the design of Secret Passage. Because it's a card that affects deck building so much. And, you know, they they printed this card that created a new archetype or a few new archetype while not buffing the existing archetype that was there before, which is Galakorok. So I think the introduction of Secret Passage, yeah, they ended up needing to tone it down a little bit. But I think the card, in terms of design, is brilliant. Yes. I agree. Uh, I, I like that card. I'm glad it doesn't draw five anymore, but I'm glad that they printed it. Yeah. And that's going to be Rogue. Like, we really don't have a lot to say about Agra Rogue here. It seems to be same as ever, which is, you know, I, I don't think there's really a compelling reason to bring it right now, and it's falling off pretty hard in popularity as well. I will say that the, the Stealth Dancer build is looking pretty good, and I recommend that for Ladder. It does a little bit better against Soul Demon Hunter, which helps because you have more off-board damage, which is good against Mystic and good against the amount of life gain that Soul Demon Hunter. You want sustained damage, and Self-Sharpening Sword really helps with that. So I do recommend if you want to play Aggro Rogue, play that. Um, but otherwise, I think that Aggro Rogue, when it 
when it cues into the best, the top meta attacks, I think it leaves something to be desired. Yeah, and that something to be desired is five-card secret passage. Um, so, let's move on to the, the next big class in the meta, which has a lot of variety right now. Let's talk about Warrior. What's going on in Warrior? We have four archetypes on the deck library. Yeah, so Warrior is a big uh, beneficiary of the Druid nerfs. Because while we lost the diversity of the Druid class, we're kind of gaining something in Warrior. Two archetypes that kind of popped up after uh, the balance changes, which is Control Warrior and Enrage Warrior. So Bomb Warrior, kind of boring. There's nothing new to say about it. You, you know what it is. You know what it does and you know what it doesn't do. Control Warrior kind of emerged as a way to beat Soul Demon Hunter. Now, Control Warrior doesn't show up in the power rankings. And the Rage doesn't either because right now, they like up to the last date of the database for this week, they weren't popular enough. But based on their low sample estimates, Control Warrior seems pretty good. Seems pretty powerful. Even showed up number one on the XR meta report. Um, yeah, like is the best deck. And I can definitely see that, like I can understand how it's happening based on the low sample that we have. But again, our number doesn't have a high degree of confidence. Uh, so Control Warrior could possibly be really good. And the reason why it's good, I will say that it's not a, it's not a narrow counter to Soul Demon Hunter because it's also very good against the other burn decks. It's good against Bomb Warrior. It's good against Face Hunter. It's good against Agrobroke. It's really good at that at against decks that try to burn you out. And we know how the burn meta was highly influential during this expansion. Also, it's pretty it's it's not good against Cyclomage. I won't say that. It's it doesn't have a good matchup against Cyclomage, but it's not like it's an auto-lose matchup. It's uh unfavorable, maybe a 40-60, something like that. So it's good against burn decks. Again, against Cyclomage, it's not very good. Uh, it's an unfavored matchup, but not to an extent that kills it. Now, the problem is that there is a deck that just kills it, which is Priest. Uh, the Priest matchup for Control Warrior is something like 1585, which is why we're really careful even taking Ixar's meta report and seeing Control Warrior be at the top, even when I know that, and I know that is the reality right now, in terms of win rate at that rank bracket that he posted and at that timeline. If Priest rises in popularity to any significant degree, then Control Warrior's win rate will drop pretty quickly. Now, it could still be competitive. It might still be like a 50% win rate deck, or maybe even slightly better. But I don't think that Control Warrior will ever be dominant in a meta where it has this kind of a bad matchup. Because if it ever gets too popular, then people will just start running Priest and just running it into the ground. So because of the fact that it has such a bad matchup, and it's just so easy to counter it, with a deck that's pretty strong right now in Control Priest, this is why I'm skeptical that it's going to be a super high meta presence or a meta-breaking deck. It might affect the meta a little bit. It might provide a good answer to Soul Demon Hunter and push us away a bit from the meta that's focused on Soul Demon Hunter. 
but I don't think it's a dominant deck by itself. I don't think you can be dominant when you have a 15-85 matchup. So that's Control Warrior. And Rage Warrior is a little bit more well-rounded. It's also performing well, and it's less likely that it's just going to crash or drop in its power just because of one matchup. Now, the Priest matchup is not good, but it's not 15-85, right? And then it's really good against aggro decks, and it's pretty good against burn decks. Not as much as Control Warrior, obviously, but it does pretty well in these matchups, too. So, and the Enraged Warrior is the one that you're familiar with. Um, pretty much two variants. There's the Egg build. There's the Double Kokron, more Burst build with one Rampage, too. And you can pick and choose whatever you want. There's no big difference uh, for now. But you can be very successful with decks that are not Bomb Warrior. And they might even be better than Bomb Warrior right now. Um, because of, like, they don't attract much attention as much as Bomb Warrior does. And they have a more, like, Enrage Warrior has a more well-rounded matchup spread, less polarizing than Bomb Warrior. So it might be more resistant to meta changes. And then we have Control Warrior, which again is very effective against certain types of decks, which is why I think it might be a great tournament deck in Conquest or such. Uh, like Ban Priest lineups could be fantastic. Um, and yeah, I think that Warrior might have been able to diversify. And by next week, it might not be all that focused on Bomb Warrior anymore, which is nice to see. Yeah, it's and Bomb Warrior is like... it's. You know, it's kind of boring. Like, you just make a big weapon and then hit them with it over and over again. Uh, I like the variety here. It really depends on how much Priest we see. If we're going to see a Rising Control Warrior and the subsequent increase in time in tournaments. Um, but it's... It's good to see all this variety. And I played some Enrage Warrior this week. You want to talk about a deck that feels surprisingly nostalgic despite being three months old. Like, that deck still feels a lot of fun to play, even though there are some cards you really don't want to run into yeah i played control warrior i tried it feels pretty powerful the list uh that we feature in the report which is bzrk's list berserks yeah so uh the thing is we can't we, we kind of uh independently came up with the list and then we figured out afterwards that it was the same list that he happened to build as well so we credit him he probably helped, uh, like, the fact that people net-decked him helped contribute to the fact that we were able to structure the deck as it was. Um, so good job there. Um, and, and the deck feels pretty good. If you don't run into Priest, then it's pretty strong. And you can just concede. No, don't concede. Or maybe you concede, yeah. I mean, the 15, like, if it's a 15, 85% matchup, you can still win. But maybe for the sake of your sanity, you don't want to go there. I don't know. It really depends if you want to try and break serve. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's up to you. It's up yeah. to you. It's a the competitive. Decision. Yeah, competitively, if you want to maximize your win rate, don't concede even in really bad matchups. But I can understand why people do that for this kind of matchup, which is like, like I don't like losing to Priest. No. <laughs> so how, being, feeling hopeless against them doesn't feel very good either. But when I had a short run of games with it, I didn't. I happened not to run into Priest, and I had a really good win rate because of it. So I think the deck is fine. 
Again, tournament conquest, I'm thinking ban priest lineups. You just auto include control warrior. I don't know if like the lineup is viable. I don't know how you build that lineup exactly, but I think that it might be very relevant in tournaments because of how good Soul Demon Hunter is and how good of a matchup uh, control warrior has against it. Yeah. Uh, if you're ban priest target Soul Demon Hunter, we'd also end up with Paladin. Um, and then we lose to Mage with that deck, but we're to, if we're targeting Soul Demon Hunter, we go something different. Yeah, there's there's something to be done there. You could pretty easily build a target target Demon Hunter lineup if you wanted to with decks in this meta, and Control Warrior would absolutely be a part of that. You'd probably play Control Priest too, because Control Priest seems to be developing some sort of advantage against Soul Demon Hunter. Yeah. So a small one, but one nevertheless. So and yeah, then you probably I can, play I can see Quest it. Druid. You really just yeah. want to beat Soul Demon Hunter? Like, that's the way to do it. Resident Sleeper lineup. Ugh. So, that's Warrior. A lot going on here. And we've already started talking about Priest. Let's talk about Priest. What's going on here? We, we're we not going full Yoink anymore. We're going full removal? Yeah. We're going full removal. Uh, so, here's the thing. Yoinking, you remember me banging on about Yoinking? It was really powerful against Druid. So now there's not a lot of Druid anymore, which makes Yoinking less powerful. It's still viable, but we wanted to feature something different that may, may have the edge right now, which is maximizing your removal. So cards like... When you don't run cards like Shadow War Death and Holy Smite, you can have troubles running into Cyclomage. And Cyclomage is extremely popular right now. Smite helps you like kill a Sorcerer's Apprentice... Uh, the death is a good answer to a mana giant. So having removal right now seems to be the way to go if you ever want to deplete um, the mage's pressure. Shadow of Death is also relevant against Demon Hunter because in, the ma the, in that matchup, you really want to always remove a Lapidary or an Adept. You cannot allow the Demon Hunter to ever hit face with those minions. Because if it does, you're in big, big trouble. So you have a couple of Shadow of Deaths. They help you deal with their mid-game threats. You have the Soul Mirror for the Militia. And you can kind of go one for one with the Demon Hunter. And if you you manage to stabilize your health total, you can be in a pretty good position against them. Uh, so having removal helps also against Rogue. Shadow of Death is pretty good because of Edwin, because of questing adventurers. So we've seen that after the balance changes, when you don't run into Druid anymore, removal because, becomes much more powerful. Because removal is not very effective when you're running into Survival of the Fittest. And it's not very effective when you run into Malagos because you can kill all of their stuff, but eventually if they draw their deck, they win. So you, less, you see less of that, then Control Priest can suddenly battle for resources more effectively. Uh, which means removal is pretty good. So the build that we have in the report, I'm pretty confident it's the best build. And the reason why I'm confident about it, because it doesn't run any stupid tech cards. Like, <laughs> Sticky Finger, I'm seeing, like, Twilight Drakes in order to make your, uh, your Cleric more consistent. You don't need to do that. You have five dragons, essentially, in the deck. So that's good enough for uh, Cleric of Scales. And you just the, the the point is the point of control priest is you like whenever they develop something you just kill it you just remove it you get rid of it or you yoink it you can still yoink 
You're still yoink, you're just going half a yoink. You're not full yoink anymore. But the yoinking is very powerful. I've seen people say, hey, maybe we cut Cabal Acolyte. Absolutely not. Cabal Acolyte is still nuts. It's still very powerful, and it's a card you want to run. And Wave of Apathy is, you know, it's like, it's not only an enabler for Cabal Acolyte, it's also like a Frost Nova kind of card, right? You can stall so much with that card. Like, the mage uh, develops, like, Mana Giant or plays, like, uh, Solarian Prime, and that summons a power of uh, creation, and you just Wave of Apathy and just buy a turn, buy another turn. You you have so much stalling and removal that you can really outlast a lot of decks right now. So that works pretty well. The only deck that you really struggle against as Control Priest, you, like all the other matchups are very winnable right now. I think Control Priest is in a pretty good position. The one matchup that is pretty bad is Bomb Warrior. And the reason is obvious. The inevitability of the bombs, you really struggle healing through that. Which might be why uh, people run Sticky Fingers because they feel like they feel compelled to counter that deck. But overall, Bomb Warrior is not popular to the point where you run run Sticky Fingers. I don't feel like I need to make that lecture again, but yeah. Don't run Sticky Fingers, just run the good list with the good cards that are good against most things in the meta, and you'll do well with Priest. I really like how it's uh, shaping up in the current meta. Yep. It's. And we actually have an interesting. Highlander Priest list featured as well. Uh, we talked about last week there's not really a reason to play it, but it seems like the reason to play it might be to get greedy. And looking at this list here, we have cards I haven't seen in a while. Siamat and Dragon Queen Alexstrasza? Yeah, the meta is slowed down a little bit. Like, Druids are not pressuring you super hard early anymore. So you have time to play more high mana stuff. And that can be powerful also in the mirror. You kind of need those high-value cards. But Highlander Priest overall is just not good. Like, we refined the build. We perfected the build for the post-patch meta. Try to make it as good as possible. But it's still nowhere near as good as Control Priest. So there's no real reason to run Highlander Priest. I'm not a big fan of the deck right now. I think its frequency patterns also tells you a lot. It's very popular at lower levels of play. It's near disappearing from high levels of play. That kind of tells you how the deck is doing, which is not great. So in my opinion, I don't think there's any reason to play Highlander Priest right now. And the deck you want to run is Control Priest, and that deck is really good. Big fan of that. It's uh, Cabal Acolyte. I'm glad it is not a 2-6 anymore because that would be be tilting to play against. It's, uh, it's It's a good adjustment. All right. Now, Highlander Hunter. We don't have any Tier 1 decks in the report this week. In at, Top 1,000 Legend. Top 1,000 Legend. But at General Legend ranks, we have exactly one Tier 1 deck by the slimmest of margins. It's Highlander Hunter. What's going on? It, it, it's also the best performing deck at Top Legend right now. It is. Which is, yeah. So Highlander Hunter, you know, I talked about in the previous podcast that we almost put it at a meta breaker in the previous report. So now it has to be the meta breaker because it's a deck that people, you know, it's flying under the radar a little bit. People are not giving it that much attention, but it's performing exceptionally well. And I can tell you right now, after the report, that the build that we're featuring, that we featured in the last report, Thursday's report, is doing 
extremely well, uh, which is expected because the archetype is just very strong. And I think that Toxic Reinforcement is a core card in Highlander Hunter right now because of the Soul Demon Hunter matchup. Uh, we looked into Toxic Reinforcements against every deck in the game. And it's a card that you don't want on turn one against pretty much almost anything else. But you really want it against Soul Demon Hunter. And you really want to draw it against Soul Demon Hunter. Because it's the one matchup where developing minions in the early game is not a good idea into the Mystic. Into their Dustbreaker. You're better off just playing Toxic Reinforcements and proceeding to Hero Power on turn 2 and 3. It's actually a stronger strategy against Soul Demon Hunter specifically. And since they have so much healing, having that much more damage certainly helps to the extent where I wouldn't be surprised if Face Hunter started playing Toxic Reinforcements too. If Soul Demon Hunter remains as popular as it is, maybe we need to revisit Toxic Reinforcement and Face Hunter as well. Because that card makes a big difference in the Demon Hunter matchup. And, you know, we looked at the matchup between Highlander Hunter and Soul Demon Hunter, and it's something like close to 45-55 in favor of the Demon Hunter, obviously. It's still not a great matchup for the Hunter, but you do better as Highlander than you are as Face. And Toxic Reinforcements might be able to push that even a little bit more towards the Hunter. Which means that if you're not that upset queuing into Soul Demon Hunters, then Hunter Hunter just looks really good. So uh, this deck is shaping up to be one of the stronger decks in the format. A deck that people need to pay more attention to. And it's performing extremely well at all. Especially at high levels of play. Well, the Soul Demon Hunter are very popular. It eclipses the face hunters, which you can kind of see start to struggle a little bit at high levels when the population of the Soul Demon Hunter reaches overbearing levels. And this is an opinion. It's more fun. You get to do more things. Maybe, yeah. You get to play with Ace Hunter Crane. That card is sweet. Yeah, Ace Hunter Crane, it's pretty good. It's not like one of the best cards in the deck, but it's a reasonable card when you're running a Highlander deck. You don't have to run it, but it works uh, well with uh, Crescent. Yeah, it works very well with True Aim Crescent, and when you make those big brain plays, uh, I had a game the other day where I used my Crescent for my King Crush to kill a taunt and then attacked face with the King Crush after for lethal. It was sweet. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Also, you run Frozen Shadow Weaver, which is also a good card against Soul Demon Hunter. So the build that we have in the report works pretty well with Soul De uh, against in that matchup. One card that we might cut eventually is Cult Neophyte, though it's very good against Mage. We know that there's there are less Druids now, but we couldn't find a better card to include. You have a low curve. You want to keep the curve low. And there are not, not a lot of options in the Highlander deck to run a lot of early game minions. So Neophyte is okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, more people are playing it. I'm noticing after the report, the deck's uh, play rate is uh, spiking a little bit. And I expect to see it, uh, a prominent feature in the post-patch meta. It would have gone there anyway, regardless of the balance changes. I think it's just well-positioned. It was fine against Druid too. So it's pretty good. Face Hunter, you know what it is. You know what it does. Um, powerful deck. Falls off a little bit right now in the current meta because of the popularity of Soul Demon Hunter and Top Legend. But on the Climb the Lemma Gym, is a, it's a pretty powerful option. Yep. And don't sleep on Face Hunter. 
Also, don't sleep on Paladin. Because Limbroom Paladin is looking like it's doing pretty good in Pure Paladin. Even though, again, at Legend, people aren't playing it because people don't play Pure Paladin Legend at High Legend. Um, Paladin's still looking like a strong class, even though we're talking about it pretty late in the podcast. Well, the thing is, about Paladin, is that it finally is receiving some recognition. It's almost like players were forced to say, okay, we have to play Paladin now because we need to beat Soul Demon Hunter. And Paladin is the class that's best positioned, unless you like build your deck in a very specific and narrow way, way like Control Warrior. That, you know, it's a bit of a polarizing deck. If you want a well-rounded deck that does well against Soul Demon Hunter, you, you pick Paladin. And Libram Paladin is a deck that I expect to see improve in its performance over the next week because we may have figured out what it needed to do in order to improve its late game, and that's simply add more draw. So we looked into Libram Paladin this week, and what we noticed is that Pyromancer is only a good card in the context of uh, uh, Libram of Justice. And it's a pretty weak card in the context of its interaction with other cards like um, Libram of Wisdom. It's not a particularly powerful combo. Only in theory is it is it powerful. But it doesn't actually happen very often. The other thing that we notice is that Penflingers... Penflinger is so good, it's so important to draw in the late game that you might as well run two of it just to make sure that you draw at least one. And running two is pretty good as well because it makes... Uh, it, you you squeeze more damage and value out of the spells that you have uh, when you run two and you draw both of them. It can be pretty strong in board control situations. It's also a, a decent combo with uh, Librem of Justice. So it's a powerful late game uh, combo. It's a powerful late game engine, damage engine. And when you run Novice Engineers instead of Pyromancer, the consistency in you finding your late game power spikes is stronger, especially when Novice Engineer is a card that you can draw from Salhut's Pride. So Salhut's Pride drawing you two cards, and those cards are also likely to draw you more cards, makes the whole plan more consistent. You find your Liadrin more often, you find your Wisdoms more often, you find your Librum discounts more often. So try run not running Wild Pyromancer and see if you miss it, we already seen before people started cutting Wild Pyromancer. It's not a novelty. It's not a complete novelty. We've started seeing people cut copy, even two. And we saw that the deck didn't really feel worse. Like, it didn't seem worse because of this. So my suggestion, just cut it all together. Take the crutch away and see if you miss it. My suspicion is that you won't, that you will appreciate the extra draw. Uh, in the deck and the extra consistency it enables and since it becomes more consistent I expect its win rate to be better even in its worst matchups which are Mage and Priest it's not going to be it's not going to start beating them but I suspect that it's going to start doing better against them a little bit better and that's all we want right we don't want to be that ambitious we're not trying to beat everything but we're trying to um, alleviate some of our weaknesses and I think that helps I really like that build. Yeah, it's running Loot Hoarders and Novice Engineers, which is a sign of a deck that it's just super thirsty for draw. And it, uh, having played with it, yeah, we like drawing cards. We like having the handful all the time. And 
you know, Wild Pyromancer, I haven't really missed it much. Uh, honestly, once we started moving away from Lightforge Blessing, then Pyromancer started to feel a lot less necessary. Yeah, Lightforge Blessing is just a luxury card. It's horrible in the bad matchups. You really cannot afford to run it uh, on ladder. Um, yeah, so Librum is pretty good. Pure Paladin is also pretty good as well. Uh, falls off a little bit. We know about that. Um, the recommendation for this week is uh, to go tall, which means running two Blessing of Authorities. Works really well with Braggarts. Powerful play against uh, Soul Demon Hunter specifically. Shot bots get cut. They were very good early on. Not so good right now, again, because there is less of a focus on developing things in the early game. It's a less successful strategy than it was before. Yep. Again, data changes, opinions change. That's how the world works. We've got yep. two more classes to talk about, kind of. There's not much to talk about them. Let's talk about uh, Shamalak. Yeah, let's talk about Shamalak. So basically, the Druid nerf is not what these decks wanted. They wanted Druid to stick around in order to be able to maybe counter them. And they wanted some buffs in order to just generally be better. Neither neither of these things happened. Druid got nerfed. Less of a reason to run Totem Shaman. Warlock didn't get buffed, so it stays dumpster tier. And that's it. So I think that concludes the class section parts. And what we want to move on to are podcast questions. We have two very good questions. And so our first question... Our supporters. Yes. And supporters, thank you very much for, for well, for your support, for your, for your backing, and, uh, and your questions here. Uh, we really appreciate everything you do for, for Vicious Syndicate. Again, if you want to be a supporter, you can check us out on Patreon or on the website and join the Gold, uh, gold Member Program. Uh, it gives you access to enhanced live stats, and it gives you direct access to Zacco and the rest of the Vicious Syndicate leadership team in the Discord. So, got first question here from Hopesfall um, about the notion of decks with high skill ceiling. So, Zach, you had actually mentioned previously uh, that the high skill ceiling decks would show a trend of performance improving with number of games played and players' individual experience with the deck. Uh, so, Hopesfall is asking if there is a higher win rate dispersion for the so-called skill decks. Uh, to summarize their question, is the skill curve effect enough to push Cyclone Mage's 51% win rate above Pure Paladin's 54%. Is the better strategy to get really good at Cyclone Mage, or should one just take the Pure Paladin win rate while it lasts? Yeah, so basically the question is, well, first of all, the answer is, if you look at Legend, Cyclone Mage is already better than Pure Paladin. You don't need uh, any manipulation of a skill curve in order to see that. You see it in the stats, too. Um, on the climb to Legend, people are just performing better against Pure Paladin, there is, there is, the skill element is definitely there. It's definitely one of the reasons. But the question is more of a, can we, can we look, how do we look at decks with, uh, with skill? Is there a way to evaluate skill, like how skill testing a deck is based on the dispersion of win rates? And what that means is, let's say there are 10 people who each playing uh, two different decks. Let's say deck A is like the high skill testing one and deck B is the more linear, simple to play one. And you've got 10 players playing each of these decks and there are five good players and five bad players, okay? Then let's assume that 
the deck with the higher skill, deck A, the five good players have an average win rate of like, I don't know, 54%, and the five bad players have an average of 46 And then in the deck B, the the differences are like 51% and 49 between the good players and the bad players. So can we assume can, can we assume that the deck A has the higher skilling because of this existing dispersion? In theory, it makes sense. In practice, this doesn't this isn't how things work on ladder. And the reason is that if you have a deck that is skill testing where weaker players perform worse with it, significantly worse with it, to the point where they have a negative win rate, they're not going to play the stack. So what ends up happening in practice is that let's go back to deck A with the five good players who have a 54% win rate on average and the five weaker players who have a 46% win rate on average. The five weaker players are just going to stop playing that deck very quickly because they're not succeeding because nobody in most players, the large majority of players will not continue to run a deck that where they lose more often than they win. They're trying to change decks until they find a deck that they succeed with, which means that those five weaker players are going to disappear and stop playing that deck. They're going to disappear from the data related to deck A. And then you end up just seeing the de- the players that end up succeeding with the deck. So what happens is the skill testing element of the deck skews the kind of players that end up choosing playing that deck. And in practice, the dispersion of win rates is not going to be that significant, and you're not going to be able to recognize a larger dispersion of win rates compared to deck B. So dispersion of win rates is not actually a good metric to evaluate how skill testing a deck is because you have to keep in mind that different decks may attract a different population of players. You cannot assume that players of equal skill always play the different decks. That the players that choose to play Cyclone Mage are of equal skill to the players that choose Pure Paladin. Which brings me to my next point. Uh, A lot of players assume, immediately assume, that the only determining factor in these kind of um, you know, skill testing decks versus linear decks is that the skill testing decks, you know, people misplay more with them and that drags the win rate down, which means that decks with that takes less skill to play or more simple to play have an inherent advantage on ladder. But there is another bias that kind of, it doesn't eliminate this bias, but it kind of offsets to it to some degree, which is that decks that require more skill also attract better players which kind of gives it an advantage too because the people who play pure paladin are not equal in their skill to the players that pick that play cyclomage cyclomage is more popular at top legend pure paladin is far less popular at top legend which means that the popular the population of players is different so you cannot immediately you not you cannot compare between them and say hey this is the win rate you can achieve uh, if you're at this kind of level this is the win rate you can achieve with with Cyclomage, and this is the winner you can achieve with Pure Paladin, because the population of players can also be skewed. So dispersion of win rates is not the best metric. The best way to evaluate whether how a deck performs at different skill levels is evaluating 
as I as uh, had uh, quoted me before, how does a singular player how does he improve with the deck with more experience? And the second, more important metric that's easier to find is how matchups changes different levels. Maybe deck A improves in a lot of matchups from when you compare it from the, like the legend performance to the I don't know the platinum performance. And while deck B has a small like gets worse in some matchups or doesn't improve much. That's a better metric. Dispersion of win rates is a good idea in theory, but in practice, the players who are struggling with the deck are not going to continue to play with it. Now, there are some outliers. And it, again, this shows why it's a case-by-case -case, uh, situation. Uh, I'll give you another example. Let's say the high-skill deck, the best players have a 51% win rate, and the worst players have a 42% win rate. What happens, what will end up happening is that only the very best players will end up running that deck and it will inflate that deck's win rate to a pretty significant degree. It will have a low popularity and a win rate that's closer to 50%. It won't be 51, but it will clo be closer to 50% and not really indicative of the deck's true power because those good players, if they played another deck, they would do far better with it. Like a really good example would be Nomi Priest in the past, where like only the five head players played that deck, and there was a point in time where that deck had a, a, a reasonable win rate because only the best players played it, and everybody else abandoned the deck. And then when it improved in its performance, and people you know posted like you know it grew in popularity a little bit, and people posted good results with it at Top Legend, then it started getting popular amongst other players too, and it's when it crashed. Because the deck wasn't actually very good. And it was hidden, that weakness was hidden because of the certain population of players that picked up on it. Another example would be if the worst players, let's say it's an overpowered deck that's, high, uh, that's skill testing. And the worst players go like 48, 49, and the best players go 58, 59 then you would see a large dispersion of win rates. But you can only really see it if the deck is powerful enough that even though lesser players do well with it. If it's skill testing too, you'll be able to see dispersion. But dispersion is not a constant. It's not something that, it's a case-by-case -case situation. It depends on the power level of the deck. And it's not something that you can reliably uh, use as a metric to define how skill testing the deck is. That is the end of my answer. I hope that was educational. My my brain is swelling so much from that information that I had to adjust my headphones. That's a lot of information. But thank you for that in-depth, amazing, super cool answer. Now let's talk about this other question that we got from Leaf, which uh, Leaf asked, how do, you how do you all feel about Team 5's approach to balance in the Skullomance expansion? Is there anything you would have done differently? Well, if you remember, I did say that I, I, I would have been I would have made less changes. I would not have nerfed guardian animals. Um, I would have waited maybe a month before the new expansion to nerf guardian animals. And probably other things too. Maybe I wouldn't have even touched Secret Passage or other cards that uh, were powerful. Dark Lair probably was the correct nerf either way. But 
Saying this would be very nitpicky because at the bottom line is both of us understand completely the changes. Mm-hmm. Like, bo- the changes are all justified. And the fact that Druid uh, is suffering right now or Warlock is suffering right now because of the nerfs to Guardian Animals is dark and Darkler, they're suffering because their design initially at Skullman's Academy wasn't the best in terms of being very polarized and being utterly fixated on just a couple of powerful cards. And long-term, that's not a good archetype. That's not a healthy archetype to keep around. And it was always going to go go away at some point. Like, Guardian Animals could not continue to exist beyond this expansion. That's 100%. So whether they made this change now or in a month from now, is a bit very is very nitpicky. The decision at the bottom line is the decision is correct because you don't want this kind of archetype to continue to exist long term because of how like a high variance element that it brings where like you either draw the two good cards or like and, and just win or you don't and you lose. You don't want these decks in the meta. And if that means that Druid is going to be weak uh, for the next couple of months, then so be it. What we've seen since over the last week is that the decline of Druid, while it definitely hurts the diversity in terms of classes, is actually increasing diversity in other classes. We're seeing Galakron Road coming back, maybe. Warrior is diversifying. There are other options that are available, new budding archetypes, new and also old, that are coming back and that shows that they were limited by Druid. So in a way, we traded some class diversity to towards archetype diversity, which is I think is okay. Um, yes, I would have loved that uh, Shaman was good and Warlock was viable and competitive and Druid was strong and, and competitive in a way that wasn't about one busted card or one or two busted card. But we that means that we need to rethink how we design druid decks going forward and try to balance the power level cards better. Like, make the druid deck less Feast of Famine, less reliant on that one powerful card, and try to make 30 cards that are reasonably powerful and are closer together in terms of power level. So, I think overall, the frequent changes, I understand why they're doing it. I understand all the changes that they made up until that point, and I think that they can all be justified. So saying that you could have done something better, I think is a little bit Captain Hindsight uh, and less uh, objective and actually constructive. So I think overall the decisions were good, they were correct, and it was all about timing more than the decision themselves. Yeah, and my perspective, uh, designing... For the future, when you don't know what's going to happen, is a lot harder than looking back at what is currently happening and saying, this is why we think it is. Uh, I Team 5 has done a very, very good job with this expansion, uh, both in terms of the initial design and the subsequent balance changes. Even though we felt like we didn't necessarily need them, I'm really glad that I don't have to go Lapidary Hero Power to clear Priest Turn 4 play. Uh, I'm really glad I don't have to worry about Turn 2, I lose my coin and my 3-drop or whatever. Uh, to Elusia. I'm really glad we don't have 30 mana turns with Kael'thas anymore out of Druid. Uh, I'm happy with the adjustments they've made. I, I think the 
I wouldn't have done anything differently. Uh, I wouldn't mind an adjustment to legendary spells being taken out of generation pools, or and I wouldn't mind Wave of Apathy not happening five times in the game. Uh, but these are just the most recent experience things. And Zach, like you said earlier in the show, if these are the biggest problems we have, Hearthstone's in a good spot. And Sam's in a good spot. Yeah, and I think frequent balance changes, there's definitely upside to them. The fact that yeah. they are very quick, they're very quick to address things that feel bad to play against. They were very quick to address Lucia and Kelthas very early in the expansion. I think that shows that they're very much in touch with the community's feelings on things. And I'm pretty sure that they've also taken the complaints to generation in mind. But overall, I think they've done a pretty good job. There will always be something that the community will will raise. I don't think that there will ever be a meta in which there won't be something to raise concerns with. But they've been very responsive, and I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and keep in mind that when you hear concerns or complaints about a meta, it's not always the same people complaining because the people that like what's happening, you don't hear from them as much, and the people that don't like what's happening, you hear from. So even if they're different people, there's still the idea of complaints, and you will see it in the same social media sources because that's where people talk about the game. So I'm I'm not going to take any kind of vocal outcry uh, as something to worry about. Also, people are more stressed in 2020 than usual and will often vent that feeling towards their hobbies so you can tell at the beginning of the year animal crossing was the game we're all just like let's just chill and hang out with our friends and by the end of the year we're all like you're a liar murder them it's it's a very different experience personally i like lying and murdering i'm a big fan of that reported (laughs) man among us is such a good game let's make a podcast about among us yeah Uh, no no we will not do that yes i'm gonna make that the tagline this episode zacko likes lying and murdering publish um so that's gonna do it for this show i'm gonna stop before i get lied to and murdered uh thank you so much for listening uh our next report will be on thursday the 15th we'll record our next podcast friday the 16th uh zach any final thoughts um the next report is pretty important uh as always when there's a new meta with a patch the second report kind of gives you more information on how the meta will continue to respond. So we're well within, we're well into October. The meta is still changing. There are still dynamics that can be tested, interactions that haven't been fully explored. And I'm looking forward to seeing how things further develop. Um, Things are not nowhere near stale. In terms of, okay, things are settled down and we know exactly what's good or not. So definitely things to look forward to and to keep in mind for the next report and the next podcast. Things are, there's still movement in the meta two months in, which is the sign of a, of a good design. So Skolomance continues to teach us many lessons. Uh, and that's it. That's our show. So big thanks to Steven Sensei for the intro and outro. And we'll talk to you next week. The Data Reaper Podcast is an official production of Vicious Syndicate. Don't forget to sign up and contribute your game data to improve the quality of the weekly Data Reaper report. Instructions are available on our website, along with lots of other weekly content at viciousyndicate.com. 
Thank you to all of our patrons and data contributors for proving their strength in numbers.